But first, two confirmation hearings to the US Supreme Court. Uh, it's a town not known for pulling its punches, but nomination hearings this week for the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., still managed to shock by the personal and at times bitter nature of attacks on the woman at the centre of it all. She's Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She'll be the first black woman to sit on the bench if she's appointed. Cory Booker, the Democratic senator from New Jersey, intervened during the hearings to support the judge, moving her to tears with his words. As it says in the Bible, let the work I've done speak for me. Well, you have spoken. You started speaking as a little girl, watching that man right there try to raise a family and study law while your mama supported everybody. You spoke in high school when you started distinguishing yourself. And you know what you said when they told you you couldn't go to Harvard? Watch me. I went to law school. I didn't serve on the law review. You did. I didn't clerk at every level of the federal court. You clerked for a Supreme Court justice, one widely respected on both sides, which really shaped you. An impassioned Senator Cory Booker there. Now, earlier I spoke to Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about the court and on legal affairs in the US for Slate. She also hosts the podcast Amicus. I began by asking her why it was that US President Joe Biden nominated Judge Jackson. Well, even before he named her, he made a promise. Uh, He actually made it on the campaign trail when he was running for president that he wanted to appoint the first black woman justice. So that was something that he had pledged way in advance of this seat opening up. It, you know, there have been 115 justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, never one black woman. And so he had already signaled that this was important to him. And immediately when Justice Stephen Breyer, who um, Judge Jackson will be replacing, when as soon as Justice Breyer stepped down, it was immediately uh, reiterated that this is what he was going to do, that he meant to uh, make this historic move And it was met with an immense amount of flack and claims that he was doing affirmative action and racial preferences and that he was narrowing the pool. So actually, in some sense, there was some blowback uh, to this. But after winnowing down a short list of about five or six really extraordinary African-American women, he settled on Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who has been a federal judge for almost 10 years nine on a lower federal trial court, and then a year ago elevated to a federal appeals court. And in some sense, she was, of all of his shortlist, the easiest lift because she had quite literally just gone through a confirmation hearing in front of the same U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee less than a year ago. Now, you mentioned blowback there. Is that why we're seeing such a kind of robust assault from some of the conservative senators um, within this hearing? Do you think there's been a lot of uh, theatre, quite a bit of circus, one could say? Despite that, in your view, do you think she's likely to get confirmed? Is this just 
performance? I think it's a different kind of blowback. I think the blowback initially, before she was actually named, really was quite racially coded. I think there was a sense that this was unfair to deserving white men, and that was the the valence around the conversation. Uh, What we saw in the hearing was quite different. It had a very different tinge. Quite quickly, some of the Republicans on the committee, particularly I should note those who want to be contenders for the 2024 Republican presidency, a lot of them started going down this rabbit hole of a handful of her sentences when she was a trial court judge, particularly of uh, sexual predators and people involved with pornography crimes, that her sentences were too lenient. And because in these four or five cases, uh, mind you, of hundreds and hundreds of cases, it's clear that she's soft on crime and soft on child predators. And that started as a kind of faint whisper at the beginning of these hearings. Uh, By the end of the hearings, it was a loud Trump last that she endangers all the children of America. And I think you're right. There was a sort of circus element of this. You couldn't help but feel a lot of these senators were the, the confirmation hearing was getting in the way of their campaign commercials for the midterm election. It felt a bit um, like an audition got- at times, didn't it? It, it got kind of crazy and it got, I should know, because I'm saying it with levity in my voice, it got extremely personal. And by Wednesday evening, um, several of the Republican senators on the committee were shouting at her, cutting her off, demanding that she apologize for some of the sentences uh, she had handed down and got to the point where she was visibly upset that it had gone from circus or audition into something that felt like a mugging. We did see a powerful defence of her by Senator Cory Booker, I suppose, in the day after that, where he, you know, quite emotionally made the pitch for her right to be there and indeed the significance of her being appointed to the Supreme Court, what it means for African-American women, what it means for African-Americans and people on the margins of American society. Uh, Senator Booker, who is from New Jersey, he's the only uh, black senator on the Judiciary Committee. And so his was a really clarion announcement. It came, by the way, at the very, very end of three long days of hearings. And he did exactly what you said. He not only gave her a moment to compose herself for the first time. uh, We saw her wipe away a tear. She let herself kind of feel her feelings, but he also gave this very poetic, you know, he he quoted the um, African-American poet Langston Hughes about the promise of America and that if you're Black, you know, you've never looked in that America, but you can dream of it. It was incredibly powerful and it was really one of the most emotional defenses that we had seen from the Democrat side of the aisle. Generally, they tended to say, you know, uh, Judge Jackson, you have adorable children. You know, your husband seems nice. Your parents seem like good people. But it didn't really rise to the level of a robust defense. And this really, I mean, I think 
for millions and millions of people who were waiting for somebody to do something about what felt like a very asymmetrical, very uh, fear-based attack to have Senator Booker stand up and just say, I see you, I see what it took to claw your way to this table, you belong in this room, was quite an extraordinary moment. I mean, I, I recall the moment where I can't remember whether it was Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, one of the Republican senators, asked her to define a woman. And she said, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not a biologist. But, you know, yeah. that, that is a big in, invitation to join, to, to dive into a culture war, isn't it? It, it was. That was Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee. Uh-huh. And she just, uh, Judge Jackson was, as you said, just stymied. There's no legal answer to that. But more interestingly, there was this drumbeat of uh, Lindsey Graham uh, was one of the real purveyors of this message of on a one to 10 scale, how religious are you? Do you feel like as a Protestant, you could fairly judge a Catholic, like really deep probing about personal faith? You know, the the Constitution actually precludes religious tests for higher office. So it's not even constitutional to ask these questions. But as you said, these are culture war questions about, you know, when when do you think life begins? Do you believe that a fetus can live outside the womb at 15 weeks? That again, sort of have something to do with abortion cases coming before the court, but also have much, much more to do with religion and faith than anything else. Now, if you're just joining us, Dahlia Lithwick is our guest on Saturday Extra. We're talking about Judge Katanji Jackson, who's about to be appointed. Well, at least there will be a vote, but it looks very likely that she will finally be appointed to the US Supreme Court. Um, Dahlia writes for Slate magazine. Dahlia, on that question, I think you slid out of answering earlier when I, <laughs> when I asked whether or not she is ultimately going to be confirmed. Can we say that with any confidence at this stage? I think we can say with fairly high confidence that there are you know, 50 Democrats in the Senate. Um, uh, the Vice President Kamala Harris uh, caucuses with the Democrats, so she gets a vote if it's a tie. I think that there's no sense that I have after the hearings that any of the Democrats are going to defect and vote against her. In fact, when Joe Manchin, who typically is the one who peels off, uh, was mm-hmm. asked, He said he saw nothing to worry about. I think that what um, President Biden had hoped for was to get three, four, five Republican votes. Because as I said, last year, when she was confirmed to the appeals court, they did pick off Republican votes. And it's a sort of a a signifier that this is not a polarizing nominee. It's not clear to me they're going to pick off three, four Republican votes on this round, even though, of course, her record itself hasn't changed. I mean, you mentioned Joe Biden, how politically important for him is that this goes through and that this goes smoothly? I think it's essential in a couple of ways. One, uh, you know, his his poll numbers have not been good. Uh, the war in Ukraine is making Americans and the rest of the world uh, very anxious about their gas prices and about, you know, supply chain questions. So generally, I think there's a feeling that he's not done anything spectacular. And I think added to that, and this goes back to why he promised um, that he would appoint an African-American woman, um, I think he understands that it was on the strength of Black women organizing, uh, knocking on doors, that he was elected. And Mm. he really has a debt to Black women in this country. And I think that because he 
failed because the Democrats have utterly failed to pass voting rights legislation that really, really uh, is important, I think, to Black Americans. I think there's a feeling that this is at least some effort to recalibrate or rebalance to pay back uh, this constituency that has showed up for him and seems to be getting nothing in return. I mean, it would be misleading to suggest that it's only Judge Jackson who's who's felt the, the drama of that hearing room. I, I covered the Brett Kavanaugh um, nomination hearings, uh, which, you know, uh, was on a different scale uh, in terms of the immediate drama. You had Christine Blasey Ford in the room uh, accusing him of sexual assault, um, Brett Kavanaugh in tears. So these are, you literally go through the fire in order to win this kind of an appointment, don't you? Don't you? It's the way that it works. I, I think that's right. I was in that room covering that hearing too, and I have to say, as hideous as this week was, uh, you're quite right, that one was off the charts. There is, you know, it's fair to say there are some that are quite quiet, um, you know, both um, Amy Coney Barrett, who uh, was appointed after uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch before him, Elena Kagan. You know, we we had some reasonably quiet ones. I think there's a general consensus that these hearings have just become too toxic. The stakes are too high. Everybody is dialed up to 11 all the time. And maybe the short answer to why that keeps happening is that when you have a Supreme Court that has arrogated unto itself the power to decide every aspect of American life from marriage equality to abortion to COVID restrictions to who gets to vote. The court decides everything. And so you have these nine unelected people who have the last word on virtually every aspect of American life, and they sit for life. They're appointed for life. They cannot be removed unless it's for spectacularly bad behavior. And I think when you have that kind of strange, strange centering of so much power in nine people, it's almost inevitable that every single one of them will feel existential. So what happens, let's imagine, let's imagine a straightforward path and Judge Jackson is elevated to the Supreme Court. You mentioned that it's a like, it will be a like for like replacement in terms of her, her own politics or the politics she might bring to, to bear on the court. Um, but does she, is there a case heading, heading toward the court um, that will be one of the first to land uh, land on her desk that will bring her again to the centre of attention? Well, again, she's going to be on what is most likely to be a, a three-judge uh, liberal minority at the court. And so in a funny way, she's insulated from a lot of attention just because I think people anticipate she's going to be on the losing side uh, of a whole lot of things in the coming years. Um, and she will not uh, likely be seated until the end of this term, which ends on the last day of June. And so there's a huge bunch of big ticket um, cases that are going to be decided between now and when she is seated. The court has a massive abortion case, a huge gun case, and so on. Her name won't be on those. She will take uh, her seat in the fall. We do know, ironically, that one of the biggest cases that's coming to the court in the fall is going to be an affirmative action case um, 
a question about affirmative action in higher education. And she's already pledged because it's Harvard and because she has associations with Harvard that she will recuse herself from that case. And so paradoxically, probably one of the most important cases that the Kate, that the court will be looking at in the fall is one she's already pledged not to sit on. That said, I think without a doubt with the midterms coming up uh, this fall, there will be big voting rights cases. Mm. There's going to be a lot, a lot of drama around the court in the coming months. And all of that doesn't even include the fact that Justice Clarence Thomas, um, one of the nine justices who sit for life on the court, has actually been in hospital all week uh, in Washington, D.C. And everybody's waiting to figure out what's happening with him with this increasingly anxious sense that until we know he's safe and back on the bench, are we going to play all this drama again out shortly? And that, I think, is raising temperatures as well. I mean, interestingly, Dolly, you've said in the past that Katanji Jackson is not a political animal. Uh, and I think that's, that's it, in what we've seen through the hearings, that certainly seems to have been borne out by her answers. She's very keen to steer a neutral line and not to get involved in those culture wars that she's kind of being enticed into. Does that work for her or against her in, in the modern court? You know, it's such a great question and I was really struck. You couldn't help but be struck by the questioning that kept asking her, what is your judicial philosophy? What's your philosophy? And she kept saying, I don't have a judicial philosophy or ideology. I have a methodology. She kept saying, you know, I basically have this toolkit that I bring to the bench every day as a judge, and it has nothing to do with political ideas. It has to do with how I, particularly, again, she sat on a trial court for nine years. So she really is a judge's judge in that sense. So you're quite right. What's absent from that is, you know, other nominees who've come before this committee in recent years who were political operatives for years. You know, Brett Kavanaugh worked on the litigation around Bush v. Gore, the 2000 election. You know, John Roberts worked in the Ronald Reagan White House. Judge Jackson is the furthest thing from that. She has not worked on a campaign. She's written briefs for conservative groups, liberal groups. She's really one of those people who's kind of just been a diligent lawyer and then a diligent judge. And so I think the answer is it made it very hard for her through this hearing because she didn't have pat political answers for anyone. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be really, really a useful skill to bring to the court because I think in a deep, deep sense, what the court doesn't need is another political animal. It needs to calm that down and to be really mindful. I guess I should note the United States Supreme Court popularity ratings in the 30s this year, which is lower than it's ever been in polling history. So to have somebody who really looks like a judge, who looks like they're trying to be neutral and do this craft of being a fair jurist, I think can only benefit not just the court internally in its own deliberations, but the appearance that the court isn't just another political branch of government. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us. I should just, before you go, I should just ask quickly, when do we know? When, when will the vote be? Has that been said? Yeah, they've said that they're going to try to do this vote before they break for their Easter recess. So I think that the date we're hearing is April 4th. Okay, very soon then. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Up next, what are the implications of soaring temperatures in the Arctic and Antarctic? <laughs> 